These are the oldest stories online at oldeststories.net. So this is a little bit awkward. The first dozen episodes of this show, I wasn't completely certain what direction the show was going to go in. So I tried little bits of everything. I had the Sumerian texts, but at that point, I didn't really have a lot of context for them. And in that, I've actually already covered a large part of the main action of the third dynasty of the city of Ur, the last gasp for Sumerian history, before we transfer completely into the later Akkadian, Amorite, Babylonian, and Assyrian histories and myth. And so, I'm going to put up a link to episode 10, entitled King Shulgi's Mailbag, or it should be in your podcast feed if you scroll down a little bit. And if you want, you can listen to it as a companion to this episode. I will be summarizing what was elaborated on in that episode and elaborating on some of the things that were merely summarized. And in any case, we pick up our tale back in the darkness of Gutian rule over Mesopotamia. The Gutians themselves aren't substantially unified, but they are everywhere, and some of them have set themselves up as petty kings. The third dynasty of Ur actually begins in the city of Urk in the year 2055 BCE. Give or take, all these dates, you know, they're a little bit uncertain. Notice that we're nearly 150 years from the death of Shar Kalashari and the collapse of the Akkadian Empire. Utuhengal was the governor over the city of Uruk, probably nominally subordinate to one of the Gutian kings, though naturally the Urukan records downplay this. When the Gutian overlord Si'um perished, or was in some other way overthrown, Utuhengel led a number of Sumerian cities in revolt against the new king Tiragan. With the revolt declared, pretty much on day one of Tiragan's new kingship, he immediately collected his army and his slaves and somehow closed off the Tigris River with dams or diversion, and the entire downriver dried up. It's actually likely that this is a poeticism, since if such a weapon was truly available to the barbarian Gutians, then surely the much more organized empires of later and previously would also have been able to cut off the river to disloyal subjects, but this was never done. Perhaps he destroyed some canals and formed a trade blockade, not a literal stoppage of water. In any case, he's said to have closed the roads, a much more plausible feat. Utu Hengel's victory monument recalls that with this, the people of the various cities became too frightened to come out of the cities and face Tiragan in battle. But Utu Hengel and his army were at the temple of Ishkur, the storm god, though where exactly that is I can't quite figure out, calling out to the gods and asking for favor. Ishtar, goddess of love and war, blessed the Sumerians' war host and they set out marching for five days to reach the Gutian army encamped at the Surungal Canal, a major thoroughfare on the Tigris. The Gutians sent a pair of generals as envoys, hoping to negotiate, but the messengers were arrested and imprisoned. While the Gutians awaited a response that was obviously never coming, the Sumerian army crept forward in the night, laying a trap behind their army and attacking the headquarters tent while the bulk of the army still slept. Tyrigan, however, was able to escape this nighttime raid and fled on foot alone. He made his way to the nearby town of Dabram, which he thought to be a loyal, obedient city. 
The citizens of Dabrun, however, had heard of Utuhangul's rebellion and his support of the traditional Sumerian gods, and they captured Tirigan and held him until Utuhangul could come pick him up. War prize in hand, the new leader of the Sumerians handcuffed and blindfolded the Gutian leader, put him on the ground, and stepped on his neck before a statue of the sun god Shamash, squeezing the life from Tirigan in the holy shrine. With the foremost king of the Gutians defeated, Utu Hengel proceeded to campaign against the Gutians, using the united forces of many Sumerian cities, in this way simultaneously reunifying the people of Sumer and driving the Gutians from the heartland. Utu Hengel claims to have driven every last one of them all the way to the mountain crevices they had come from, and from the inscriptions it appears to have been just as simple as that. He beat all the Gutians in one fell swoop, and large chunks of Sumer spontaneously claimed him as king. And with this, he established the fifth dynasty of Uruk, not in charge of all Sumer quite yet, but definitely the largest power block of the age. We don't know how he spent the next seven years. My guess is that he spent the time fighting Gutians and bringing citizens under his hegemony, since I rather suspect that the whole one fell swoop thing is later mythologizing or official propaganda. He may also have spent it simply stabilizing and rebuilding infrastructure, since it is certain that quite a lot of rebuilding was necessary. The climate had mostly restabilized, but Sumer was plagued with abandoned fields, roads and canals overgrown with weeds, and temples fallen into disrepair and vandalized by the barbarians. Post-apocalyptic would be a bit too strong, but Sumerian literature certainly evoked a feeling of living among the ruins of what came before. We are at least certain that he did some amount of rebuilding, since in his seventh year, Utuhengel went out on tour to inspect infrastructure. While surveying a dam, there was an unfortunate collapse. The ancients agree that it was not sabotage, just a tragedy. And within minutes, the fifth dynasty of Uruk came to a sudden and unexpected end. Fortunately, Utuhengel had already selected his successor. He had married his daughter to the talented governor of the vassal city of Ur, a fellow named Ur-Namu. Both the daughter and the governorship were likely rewards for a faithful ally and skilled general who had fought beside Uruk in expelling the Gutians. It's unclear whether Utuhengel had a son of his own, but there are a number of instances around this period and in later Sumerian history of kings selecting heirs outside of their own bloodlines based explicitly on competence, a highly rare occurrence in world history generally speaking. So the idea of competence-based succession may have been in the air at the time, though lacking much written philosophy or any dissertations on statecraft, it is impossible to be sure of what sort of ideas were being proposed and considered. And so we get to Ur-Namu, who immediately moves his capital to the city of Ur, founding the much more famous Third Dynasty of Ur, sometimes called Ur III. The Sumerians themselves did note the distinction of dynasty, but considered the two to have been a single continuous historical chain, and the famous general's ascension appears to have been unchallenged. 
But that doesn't mean he didn't face any challenges once coming to the throne. As mentioned at the end of the last episode, the prosperous city of Lagash had come under the rule of a man who got a reputation as a spineless quizzling for the Gutians. And whether Ur-Namu felt provoked by the Gutians or their subject Lagashites, or if he simply felt the need to shore up support by liberating good Sumerians from the evil Gutians, he quickly raised an army and attacked the city of Lagash and killed its Quisling king, freeing it from Gutian bondage and bringing it into gentle Ur's hegemony. But what sort of civilization was he bringing Lagash into? Utuhangel was mostly focused on getting any civilization at all back up and running, but by the reign of Ur-Namu, the scribes and ruling classes have time to start figuring out how their new order is going to look. There is a tension here, a desire on one hand to follow the ancient Sumerian ways and customs native to the land, and a drive on the other hand to rebuild and perpetuate the strength and glory of the Akkadian Empire. The Sumerians had always felt that their own ways of conducting religion and culture were unquestionably superior, but they also now had quite a lot of respect for the legacy of the Akkadians. Their industrial, bureaucratic, and linguistic reforms had been woven into everyday experience for many. Even the Akkadian language had slowly begun to overtake the Sumerian on the street. There was no singular decider for this tension. Indeed, no external indicator survives that they were even aware of the conflict at all. But with every decision they make, they find themselves following one of two patterns. This period is called by historians the Neo-Sumerian period, or sometimes the Sumerian Renaissance, and they definitely seem self-conscious that this new dynasty represents the first time the Sumerians were ascendant in Mesopotamia since the defeat of Lugal Zagazi 250 years ago. That means Sumer has been dead as an independent political entity for almost as long as the United States has been around as a country. But at the same time, in this rebirth, we're going to be seeing the cultural changes that tell of the final death of Sumerian culture. It begins here, with Ur-Namu. He rules a Sumerian city-state, but in his propaganda and inscriptions, he very clearly positions himself as a patriarch over his subjects. He wanted his subjects to know that he saw them as his beloved children and would care for them. Though the Sumerians were patriarchal in their households, for the king to emulate this in his rulership was a Semitic and Akkadian idea being adopted. He still claims the traditional Sumerian Lugal as title, but his administration appears to have been, in most ways that counted, Akkadian in form. He sent out loyal men to rule and watch over his subject cities, though as we saw in the episode King Shulgi's Mailbag, it seems to have been harder for the kings of Ur to secure the loyalty of these governors than it was for the Akkadians. One concession to traditional Sumerian values is that he declined to deify himself. We saw that even petty kings in Lagash started to pick up the tradition after the fall of Akkad, but Ur-Namu and Utu-Hengel before him declined to claim this honor. 
The back and forth among kings on the topic of self-deification in this period is a fascinating window that tells us for certain that there were fundamentally different conceptions of the Mesopotamian religion interacting in the same space. The traditional Sumerian faith was beginning to really wrestle with what it meant to be absorbed into Akkadian culture. But again, we get no treatises breaking down explicitly what was going on. We just have to follow the issue over the centuries and take hints from shifts in language and policy. All this may seem a bit academic, but we know for sure that along with conquering Lagash, Ur-Nammu spent his first few years very explicitly laying down the new order, giving his second and third year names as the year Ur-Nammu put in order the ways of the country from top to bottom, and the year Ur-Nammu made justice in the land, this last being an explicit reference to his law code, the oldest surviving example of laws, which was covered more extensively in King Shulgi's mailbag. This was a huge part of emerging from the wreckage of the old empire. Once he had done that, he then proceeds to conquer most of the rest of Sumer, definitely including Nippur, Adab, and Larsa, and by his sixth year he's able to proceed through the city of Nippur in the traditional ceremony that marks a king out as master over the Sumerians. But the whole time, he didn't want his focus to be on conquest. None of his year names mention campaigns against fellow Sumerians, and only one mentions any combat at all, in which he claims to have destroyed the Gutians. We know he definitely fought in Sumer, and campaigned constantly against the barbarians, but he was more interested in memorializing each year for what he built, or how he was pious before the gods, sometimes both at once in the case of temple construction. Ur-Nammu centralized Sumer for the first time since the Akkadians, and provided the first measure of stability and security that anyone had seen for generations. This produced an economic boom that he taxed heavily and redirected toward absolutely massive construction projects and desperately needed infrastructure repairs. And he was, in turn, fairly popular by all accounts. He likely sponsored the many praise poems and hymns to the gods in his name that survive, but the fact that they were preserved at all and in such numbers rather than rotting in obscurity suggests how well regarded he was by later scribes. He even gets a death lament that survives in fairly good condition. It is a bit extravagant, but also a great example of actual cult practice related to funerals and the afterlife though a bit dry to read just for the story. In it, he's eulogized as a trustworthy shepherd, the sword of Sumer, the wise one, and the vigor of the land itself, loved by the soldiers and common people. Any king might be offered such platitudes, but they rang true enough to actually survive for Ur-Nammu, while most of the others were ignored once the funeral had ended. And for anyone who's actually interested in cult practice of the Sumerians, I am going to post a link to this on the website at oldeststories.net. His death itself was the direct result of battle wounds in one of the many fights against the Gutians. It appears that he was directly engaged in the battle, as was his custom, when either clever planning by the Gutians or a tactical error by the Sumerians saw the king's retinue isolated and cut down in the heat of battle. 
But he had laid a sound foundation for Mesopotamia, which allowed his son Shulgi a secure base to begin building from. And build he did. The 50 years from 2094 to 2047 over which he ruled would prove to be the last great gasp of air for Sumerian culture, though even here we see definite changes. Right in year one, the year of his coronation, he ignores his father's religious convictions and deifies him. This almost certainly angered the temple factions who had been so supportive of his father, and even though his first few years involved a fair bit of temple building, it appears to have been temple building on Shulgi's terms. Shulgi, you see, was literate. With many prior kings, it's uncertain how much they could personally read and write, since they would always have been accompanied by scribes. But with Shulgi, it is clear that he had personally received scribal training during his days as prince, and, being decently clever, had come up with a lot of improvements, the sort of things that you ruminate on while imagining that, oh, if I was in charge, I would change stuff around here. Well, now that Shulgi is in charge, he changes stuff. As he orders the construction of these temples, he starts changing the ritual inscriptions. It's hard to tell from this vantage point what he was changing, and impossible for us to weigh in or even identify the theological issues involved. But it's pretty clear that Shulgi thought there were errors in how religion worked, and went to correct them, while the priestly classes considered this the rankest blasphemy. Shulgi, however, backed up his clever argumentation with a revived standing army to keep them quiet, and he was able to keep their disgruntled muttering to a minimum until he died and they had free reign to slander him again. He also made changes to the curriculum of the Edubas, the scholarly schools of Sumer, and re-standardized the weights and measures that had begun to diverge after the collapse of the Akkadian Empire, and also standardized timekeeping and the calendar, forming the very earliest systematic foundation of the time and date systems we use today. Another change, though it's impossible to say how big it was, is that in these first years, it appears unlikely that Shulgi went out on every military expedition with his standing army. In older times, it was absolutely mandatory for the king to accompany the army on each invasion campaign. But with the establishment of year-round armies by the Akkadians, the ability to mobilize troops and put them anywhere that a problem arose began to conflict with Shulgi's need to rule from the capital. There is a lot of inference here. It's possible that there were minor campaigns in the past that did not include the king, but Shulgi is the first king that we can say for certain was not out accompanying his soldiers on every campaign, which is part of why his first two decades feature no year names about conquest. This has obvious benefits for military flexibility, and allowed Shulgi to spend his time on domestic pursuits while the Sumerian heartland was off being secured. But it wasn't all innovation all the time. He brings back Sumerian as the official language. Ever since the Akkadian Empire, Akkadian had been the language of choice for the merchants and officials throughout the region. For the next 40 years, however, the diminishing Sumerian language, likely already being replaced even by the common folk and fast becoming a purely literary language, will enjoy its last gasp of official status. 
It's hard to talk about this Neo-Sumerian period without also being aware that the sunset of an era is fast approaching. In any case, Shulgi wasn't merely a bookworm. He was a youth full of energy who maintained his body like a true warrior. In his seventh year, he claims to have run from the city of Ur to the city of Nippur, with a good hundred or so miles between them, in a single day. Certainly not impossible, though it would require him to be in tremendous shape. In an age before horses, this was about as fast as anyone could go. He would memorialize the feat in a number of inscriptions and a year name, spreading his story and his strength across the region. In later times, he would become a semi-mythic figure for his endurance, both literally and in love poems, praising his endurance in lovemaking as well. The actual growth of the Neo-Sumerian Empire is largely obscure to us. We know that there were an unspecified countless number of campaigns by Utu-Hengel, Ur-Namu, and Shulgi, typically with the Gutians listed as the enemy. But by the middle of Shulgi's reign, the empire had somehow expanded to reach all the way up to Assyria on the Tigris River, and just short of Mari on the Euphrates, with all the land of Sumer and Akkad at least nominally under the dominion of Ur. In all likelihood, these three kings viewed, or at least presented in propaganda, these Gutian wars as clearing out an infestation, even as they gained territory by clearing the Gutians out of evermore land and absorbing any independent cities they came across at the same time. There's also been an amount of invisible centralization as well. We get some feel of it with Shulgi's letters, seeing the limits of central authority, but also in that, seeing how it's usually respected in most of the empire. We also see it in religion. Shulgi's period, likely as part of his religious reforms, see the introduction of previously foreign gods into Ur, including deities from Susa and Assur. These are fringe regions that need to be held with diplomacy and by cultivating a sense that they're part of a cultural unit with the Sumerians. Additionally, we see him bringing cities in without violence through marriage alliances, such as with distant Anshan on the far side of Elam. So far, we're 20 years into Shulgi's reign, and maybe 25 years into a solid run of prosperity within Sumer. The entire Mesopotamian heartland is more or less pacified, and that heartland has been extended to include some of the northern Assyrian cities and the eastern Elamite city of Susa. Then, in the 19th year of his reign, he completes a temple in Dur to the local protective deity Ishtaran. There was a great state-sponsored feast and celebration, since why wouldn't a major city at the foothills of the Iranian mountains appreciate their protective god being restored to them? The next year, dark omens arise, and the professional army is too small for the forces arrayed against them, and the citizens of Ur are drafted as spearmen. Shulgi resolves the dark omens by setting the temples of Enlil and Nilurta, quote, in order. And the next year, the rebellious city of Dur is destroyed. They'd been given a temple, but when they saw King Shulgi's religious reforms, they balked. The temple caste castigated the king for his dire blasphemies and raised the entire region in rebellion for independence and orthodoxy. 
The details of the campaign are unrecorded beyond what was just mentioned, but it must have been extreme since Shulgi himself was drawn out on campaign and his standing army proved insufficient, requiring reinforcement from the capital itself. The rebellious city is destroyed utterly, as is only right for a rebellion, and having led the army personally and defeated likely traditionalist priestly elements, Shulgi decides that this is the right moment to emulate his Akkadian hero Narem Sin and declare himself a god. And so, in the 23rd year of his reign, he names himself Divine Shulgi, the Strong, King of Ur, and King of the Universe. The Strong seems to have been his own addition, a reference to his great run, but the title and claim to godhood is meant as a more direct link back to what was still viewed as the high point of Mesopotamian history. The slander that would be attached to Naram Sin was at this point likely still confined to the priestly classes who were in any case already opposed to Shulgi. The temple priests may, in fact, have been right to accuse him of upsetting the gods. If we look solely at his year names, the first 20 are almost completely peaceful, but we find that the year names following his self-deification are almost all devoted to war. And despite this, later scribes even go so far as to accuse him of falsifying these later records to hide evidence of even more war. This charge is one of the most serious brought against him, since the inventors of writing took honesty and records to be of paramount importance. Couple this with the charge that he confiscated property from the temples to pay for his wars, which may be the event in which he claims to have set the temples in order, a distortion of his claimed actual confiscation of land, as well as his self-deification, and you have the source of a very discontent priestly class. Nearly the entire Akkadian region appears to have revolted at all this injustice, but the fabricator Shulgi prohibited official records from mentioning this blight on his record. As such, we know little about the uprising, except that it must surely have been put down. But it isn't just, or even principally, internal rebellion that causes him so much trouble. All of his frontiers are squeezed at this point, since just as Mesopotamia was recovering from the dreadful climate crisis of the 2100s, so too were the barbarian people surrounding Sumer recovering, and at this point it appears that they've gathered enough strength to really start pushing against the walls of civilization. The Elamite king had been married to Shulgi's daughter not long before, but after only four years, unspecified disagreements saw the Sumerian army marching against Anshan, defeating them but still losing a grip over the eastern mountains. The nomads of Iran attacked ceaselessly in those days, and in one year he claims to have been forced to engage the Erbilum, Simurum, Lullabum, and Karhar tribes in a single campaign, though managing to smash all their heads in that year. The year before that is listed as the year that Simurum and Lullabum were defeated for the ninth time in 20 years. On the other side of the region, the Amorites were restless as well, striking from the desert at will, as well as pushing against northern fortresses. It grew so bad that Shulgi was compelled to construct a 250-kilometer-long wall in the desert west of the Euphrates River to prevent the raids. 
The Amorites could and did walk around that wall, but while it remained fortified, the region right behind it, the farmlands of Ur, were safe from constant raiding. And so it went with the rest of Shulgi's reign, battle after poorly recorded battle. Despite the wealth of information we have from his reign, we have no idea how he organized his forces, or how that differed from the previous Akkadian ones. We don't know how he fought or if he was actually a good commander. And so all that's left to do is fast forward to his death in 2047 after 48 years on the throne. We don't know the cause of his death, though it was likely old age given the length of his reign. He left a number of children, all in high positions as governors and temple administrators, but it was Amar Sin, now well into adulthood, who took over from his father. It's hard to condemn Amr's sin. He holds the empire together, after all, but his reign is nowhere near as impressive as his father's had been. Right from the start, we see the Sumerian language, which had been diminishing rapidly in common usage, supplanted for the final time by Akkadian. Sumerian would continue to be a language of literature and religious worship, but like Latin in the modern day, would grow slowly less relevant over the centuries. We're still in the Sumerian Renaissance, but this is the tail end of it for sure. Emerson was already writing his name with the divine mark when he takes the throne, and was likely deified along with his father, or perhaps as part of the coronation ceremony. Still, he doesn't have as much time for theological debate and legal reform like his father had. Every single year sees an incursion by the mountain barbarians or the Amorites of the desert, with increasing pressure from the latter. What time he did have free from managing the barbarian incursions was spent rehabilitating the most ancient holy sites of Sumer. Tellingly, he invested a great deal of resources into the construction of a new and mighty ziggurat at the ancient city of Eridu, considered by the Sumerians to be the oldest city in the world. But even as he was building it, the city was being abandoned, having never recovered during the long night following the collapse of the Akkadian Empire and experiencing severe salinity problems. The city of Eridu would remain mostly abandoned, maintained only in more prosperous times as a temple, before finally being forgotten in the 6th century BCE. This piety, even in the middle of a barbarian crisis, undoubtedly had pure motives. Emerson was a pious man in a pious time, but it also had, as well, more pragmatic aims, or at least pragmatic as he understood it. You see, Emerson had at some point in his life received a prophecy that he would die by being gored from an ox, and so in addition to his temple patronage, he oversaw an annual festival called the Akatu and followed his father's religious innovations to change the manner in which offerings were given. And this appears to have worked. At the end of his ninth year as king, he was not killed by an ox's horns. Instead, there was a scorpion in his shoe, likely killing him from complications rather than outright since very few scorpion species are actually lethal. An alternate possibility is that his brother had selected the scorpion specifically and caused it to be placed in his shoe in the first place, in which case one of the few deadly types would likely have been selected. 
I bring up his brother now because it is Shu Sin who takes up the throne following his brother's death. Amerson may or may not have had children, it is unknown, but Shu Sin seems to have wanted the throne regardless. Which is a shame, since while the younger brother may have wanted the throne more, he was not as capable of a ruler as his older brother had been. He comes to power holding basically the same territory his brother had begun with, and faces a similar array of threats, but it is under Shu Sin that Ur's empire begins to buckle under the weight of it all. There was not much peacetime during his reign, but when there was, it was spent in the usual ways. Like brother and father, he claimed the divine mark at the front of his name, and he patronized temples with gifts. He seems to have been personally charming, since the oldest surviving love poem is from his reign, written in the voice of a female speaker proclaiming her love in very erotic terms to Shu Sin. Still, the main action here is in the fields where the Amorites begin to push so hard that they start to overrun the north and spark a rebellion among Amorite communities that had previously been living peacefully under Sumerian domination. Things get so bad that Shusin is forced to construct a second Great Wall, this one in the southern Akkadian region, to block off the entire stretch of land between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. The wall was effective enough to prevent the loss of Sumer, at least for now, but all outlying regions have either been overrun by now or have declared independence. The Assyrians at this point begin to break away, as do the Elamites, and much of Akkad is only occasionally defended. And then King Shusin dies, to be succeeded by his unprepared son, Ibisin. The sun is now setting on Sumer. The culture is in decline, and the people are under attack. Next episode, we will end this historical period with the extensive letters written by an increasingly frantic Ibisin. After that, we're going to spend a few episodes on various topics of Sumerian culture before taking a look at what is to come, the rich and confusing Babylonian period. So join me next time as we close out our long period of history with the letters of the final Sumerian king and the end of Sumer as an independent force in Mesopotamia. Thank you for listening.